I've been to a lot of conferences in my time, and I always feel bad for two guys. The guys that speak right before lunch, and the guys that speak right after lunch. (laughs) And I've been that guy. You can smell the food out in the hallway, and so I know I'm going to lose your attention. So I'm going to try to keep it short and to the point. Uh, But it's an absolute honor and a joy to be here. I feel like my soul has been fed well. I could just as easily go sit back down and just listen and worship. But we have another sola in front of us, a solus Christus, Christ alone. And although it could probably be said to some measure of all of the topics for these, I will make my case that of all of the topics, of all the solas, if you will, the one that is most inflammatory, the one that is most dangerous, the one that I, as a pastor, am zealous to charge you with, to go and proclaim, but at the same time I feel like I am sending sheep out to the slaughter in this postmodern, post-Christian world that sneers at absolutes. When you go and proclaim, not Christ, go and proclaim Christ, you'll be fine. It is the Christ alone that will cause you to lose your head. So let's pray and let's ask for grace. The title of my message is Solus Christus, Declaring Christ Exclusivity in an Age of Inclusivity. Declaring Christ Exclusivity in an Age of Inclusivity. Father, we come to you in Jesus' name. Lord, I thank you for these dear ones that have gathered. I thank you for my brothers that have rightly handled your word. And yet, despite all these things, we feel like Paul, who is sufficient for these things? Lord, we gather in this little enclave of Grace Bible Church, for which we are very thankful that you brought to pass. And we hear wonderful truths, and our hearts are stirred. But Lord, we know the storm clouds are gathering. We know that our day is in need of a reformation just as desperately as it was in 1517. And we know just as many of these reformers that we love to speak of went to the stake and were consumed in the flames, so shall many of your people in this day be when they proclaim not Christ as one in a pantheon of gods, but Christ alone. And regardless of how kind we say it, we will indeed draw the ire of this generation when we dare to say that we are right and they are wrong. But it is in the foolishness of that gospel that you will save the elect. So God, keep us humble, keep us sober, but keep us confident that it has always been in the foolishness of the preaching of Christ alone that you have exalted your wisdom. We lack nothing for this day and age, and in Christ we have all we need. In Jesus' name, amen. According to Ligonier's 2020 State of Theology survey, if you haven't looked that up, I encourage you to do so. They do it every two years. Ligonier's State of Theology Survey. They survey 
non-Christians to kind of get a, a feel of how they're thinking about theological matters, and they survey professing evangelicals, and they compare the data. It's always fascinating. No statistical analysis is perfect, but this one I think is very helpful for us as Christians to think rightly and to discern the times. According to the 2020 State of Theology survey, nearly one-third of professing evangelical Christians agreed to the following statement. One-third of evangelicals agreed to this. Jesus was a great teacher, but He was not God. One in three of our professing peers would agree to that statement. Nearly 42%, almost half of those surveyed, affirmed the following statement. God accepts the worship of all religions, including Christianity, Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. Nearly half of the professing evangelicals that were surveyed affirmed a rank form of pluralism. The current postmodern mindset rejects absolute truth claims. Our culture is marked by cynicism toward dogmatic claims. I got a taste of this. I did something I said I would never do. I got into a Twitter battle. <laughs> I always said, it's so dumb. You're not going to convince anybody of anything. And I did it anyway. And it was interesting because I actually didn't say much. I reached out to someone publicly and said, hey, I'm praying for you. I'd love to meet you for for coffee and to discuss theology. That's all I said. And just that drew, my, my Twitter account was going crazy. And it was comment after comment of how condescending, how dare you? How dare you infer that someone would want to talk to you because you, we know you're trying to persuade us of something. Vis-a-vis... It is the height of arrogance to come to the table to persuade someone of your position as if you can be certain. The French sociologist Jean-Francois Léotard, he described the skepticism of postmodernism this way, quote, incredulity toward metanarratives. And you think, what in the world? That's just a fancy way of saying modern man hates any claim to transcendent, objective, binding truth. So we could just be done right now and we could get along with the culture just fine if we preached Christ and just strike the soulless part. If I go out into the public square and I declare, I have found truth, I have found a way, I have found something that's good for me, I have found a truth that makes my life better, and I find it in Jesus, Jesus Christ, most will applaud that and say, good. But if I dare stand up and proclaim the passage that we're going to look at today, just one verse, Jesus Christ in John 14, 6 says, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. That definite article, the, there is an infinite chasm between that and the indefinite article, I am a way. 
Jesus says, no one comes to the Father except through me. That message will get you killed in 2021. And if it doesn't get you killed, it will get you fired. It will get you ostracized. But it also might just get somebody saved. (laughs) As you can see, we need to declare Solus Christus in our day just as passionately as the Reformers did in theirs. Not only that He is the only way, but that He is sufficient. For the glory of God and the love of lost souls, we must boldly affirm that Christ is not a Savior, but He is the Savior. We must risk being persecuted by boldly denying that there is any other path to salvation outside of Jesus Christ. And we must boldly and clearly proclaim the Christ of Scripture and not a Jesus of our own making. So I want you to turn with me, if you will, to John chapter 14. John 14, we're only looking at verse 6. And there's three implications I want to draw out from this text before we break for lunch. When we look at what is perhaps the primary proof text for Solus Christus, Christ alone, we see three implications. Number one, we see that Jesus is the Lord. He is the Lord. Oh, we throw that word around. Thank the Lord. Bless the Lord. But do we feel the weight of that title? And not that He is a Lord or some lesser magistrate, but He is the Lord. We go to John fourteen six, and we read these words. Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. If you back up and get the context of this, John 14, 1 through 5, his disciples, he's telling them, I'm going away, I'm going to the Father. Thomas says, how do we know the way? How do we know where you're going? That's my paraphrase. And that leads into our verse. Jesus says, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. But we have to stop, don't we? We can't assume anything. Not in this day and age. You would think since the Reformation and the proliferation of the printing press and and all that everyone would be wonderfully biblically literate and they know exactly what we mean when we say Jesus. We can just jump into that nice soundbite of way, truth, life. Not so fast. Who is the Christ of Solus Christus? This has been a problem ever since the inception of the church. I'm just going to look at a handful of historical errors. Uh, errors. Brother Bowder did us a wonderful service by looking at uh, the era of Aquinas and kind of the Middle Ages, and I'm going to go back a little bit further to the era of the patristics, to the first, second, third century. Immediately, the church had to go to the mat to defend a right understanding of who Christ is. An early heresy that our church fathers had to combat was docetism, D-O-C-E-T-I-S-M, docetism, from the Greek word dakeo, to appear. Docetism taught that Jesus was totally divine, but that his humanity was merely an appearance. 
And there's, Brother Browder said it rather, there's all kinds of platonic thought bleeding into this. The dualism of the pagan mentality that whatever is physical is evil and, and worthless, whatever is spiritual is good, this kind of dualistic thinking. There's all kinds of that going on. But our early church fathers had to fight primarily for a right understanding of the Trinity and a right understanding of who Jesus is. We've got to get that right. Docetism taught that he merely appeared to be human. And that made the message of Christianity more acceptable to a pagan society that viewed the flesh as evil. You ever notice how Paul gets a hearing in Acts 17 at the Areopagus with all the, all the pagan philosophers, these, these aristocracy that like to hear something new and just contemplate their sanctified navels? They bring Paul in and they listen to him for quite a while, but then when do they dismiss him as a babbler? When he preaches a physical resurrection. Why in the world? What, what a regression in the mind of a pagan to go back to a, an incarnated deity. No way. And lo and behold, our early church fathers had to fight this mentality because we preach a risen Christ in a physical body. So docetism was an early error that our forefathers had to combat. So was Arianism. Arianism taught that the Son was not co-eternal with the Father, but He was a supreme creation or maybe an emanation from the Father. Now, you can dress it up with whatever language you want and say, well, He's highly exalted, but He's still a finite creation. He's not the co-eternal Son of the Father. And you think, why in the world are we even talking about this? Does this have any relevancy for our day? Rewind the clock about three years ago, beautiful spring day like today, maybe a little bit warmer. I'm back in Wisconsin with my family. I was wearing gym shorts. I was going to go for a run. I had a hoodie on. I don't love running, but I do it because I like to eat. And I hear a knock at the door, and which is fine. You know, there's neighbor kids coming down, and but I could tell I have five kids, and so you're not going to get to the door before they do because it's like a competition. So they get to the door, and then I can tell by the interaction that it's someone they don't know. And so my fatherly spidey senses go off. So I come downstairs and say, "Can I help you?" And there's a man and a woman there, wonderfully nice, sickeningly nice people. And they said, you know, we'd like to invite you to our event. You know, Easter's coming and this and that. And I could tell immediately I'm dealing with Jehovah's Witnesses. I said, why don't you all come on in? I said, won't you, I'd like to watch your video. You know, they had a little iPad video. I mean, they're getting very... Very technologically advanced now. So they had like a bumper video for their services, and they're talking about Jesus. Good enough. And I watched their video, and I looked at them, and I said, I appreciate you coming in, and I want you to know you're welcome here anytime, but I have to tell you that what you're affirming is really nothing more than a modern iteration of an ancient heresy called Arianism. And it was denounced a long time ago and the weight of Christian history lies on my side. And so, don't take my word for it, but I'm just putting you on notice that if I knew that the weight of 2,000 years of church history was against me, it would at least give me pause to reconsider my position because they teach that Jesus is a highly exalted, created being of Yahweh. You think, well, who cares? Let's just go along to get along. 
who needs more drama in their lives. Because I care about those two people, I want them to understand that a finite being cannot absorb infinite wrath. And I want them to be saved, and they need a right understanding of who Jesus is. You cannot love what you do not know. Oh, I wish I could say that they were convinced that day. They were not. I've never had a Jehovah's Witness take back their tract from me. <laughs> but they say, well, I'll just take that back. It's like, I have never had someone take away the Jehovah's Witness literature. So they took it back. I say that to make sure we don't lose track of where we're at. These are not old arguments. There's nothing new under the sun. So when we talk about solus Christus, we have to make sure we understand who is Christ. It is not docetism. He is fully man and fully God, and that is pregnant with theological implications. He is co-eternal with the Father. It is not Arianism. It is also not Apollinarianism. I didn't know if I'd be able to say that without stumbling. I think I got it. Apollinarianism, which taught that Christ was fully divine, but he was only about two-thirds human, that he lacked a human soul. Therefore, he is not really the God-man of Scripture. Bear in mind, beloved, that a lot of these early heresies bear the namesake of a church leader that just got it off a little bit. So if you think all that doctrine and book learning is just for the seminarians, be advised. Doctrine does divide. It divides truth from error. And it's also not Eutychianism. Oh, Eutychianism. This blurred the distinction between Christ's humanity and His divinity. That it's, He's not, you know, fully God and fully man. It's like, a, it's like taking ink and dropping it in a glass of water and it kind of melds into... You ever heard the, fra- or the phrase, tertium quid, a third way? Eutychianism said Jesus was a tertium quid. He was a third being. Not really man, not really God. It was this kind of amorphous thing. Then we add to that milieu the Muslim view of Jesus. Oh yes, you go to a Muslim and some of my brothers here will know. You tell them, do you read your Injil, your New Testament? And they should say yes. And if they read their Injil, then they should know about Isa, who was born of a virgin. Jesus, but I can assure you that Isa of the Quran is not the Jesus you would recognize, especially in their eschatology. What about the New Age Jesus? He's kind of a hippie. He just kind of gets along with everybody. He talks a lot about love, which really is nothing but a modern iteration of Marcionism. Marcion taught that the God of the Old Testament is cantankerous and mean and judgmental and is very different from the God of the New Testament, which especially when we look at the life of Christ, He's just all love and compassion and He looks like a shampoo model. What about the Mormon Jesus? Talk about nice people. I sat at a coffee shop in Wisconsin with two young Mormon guys. They were some of the nicest most wholesome young men. And I risk hurting their feelings. And I can tell you that I I like to be liked. I, I don't thrive on drama and conflict. I'll fight if I have to, but it takes a lot out of me. Some of that's my own idolatry. 
Or here's these two young guys that I could have hung out with all day. They're just nice guys. And then came that turning point. And you can feel it, can't you? Where it's like, I got to get these guys to the gospel, and it's going to go one way or the other. Choose this day whom you will serve. And I looked at him and said, guys, because I care for you, I have to take you to Galatians 1. We've already talked about the Book of Mormon and different things and the angel Moroni and, the, and all the different, you know, minutiae that you believe and this idea that Jesus is kind of the spirit brother of Satan and some of the nuances of the, the Book of Mormon. And you, you realize that the Jesus that I'm talking about is not the same Jesus you're talking about. And they said, well, I guess I can grant you that. There's, there's differences here. I said, okay, now that I got you on the hook, let me take you to Galatians 1. And what does Paul say? Galatians 1. He says, if I or an angel from heaven, angel Moroni, if I or an angel from heaven preached to you another gospel, let him be Damned, and I say it again, let him be damned. I said, you literally are telling me an angel came and preached another Christ. Do you hear that? One of them was sympathetic, but his leader was fit to be tied and overtalked him to make sure he toes the line and the conversation was over. So when we come to Solus Christus, it'd be very nice just to jump to the way, truth, the life soundbite because it just preaches well. But we cannot take for granted that we know who Christ is. And so in light of all these, and there are, there are myriad more, we just don't have time. What I want to do is I want to affirm solid, historical, biblical Christology to get it anchored in our brain and then we'll move on. I'm going to read from the Nicene Creed. Tellingly, penned in A.D. 325, right? Right when the early patristic fathers are wrestling with all these things and they need to codify what does Scripture say about the God-man. Here's what they wrote. And this is why exegetical theology matters. We need to know what words and context mean, but historical theology matters too. The Nicene Creed says this, We believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, contrarianism, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made, who for us men and our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man. He didn't just appear to be a man, he was man. And was crucified for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried. And the third day he rose again, according to the scriptures, and ascended into heaven. And sitteth on the right hand of the Father, and he shall come again with glory to judge the quick and the dead, whose kingdom shall have no end. 
So when we come to John 14, 6, we slow down and say, Then Jesus said to them, Who is the Christ of Solus Christus? It is the Lord. Not a Lord, not a lesser magistrate, not one of many. It is the one who is co-eternal with the Father, who is seated at the right hand of power, and who is coming back to judge the living and the dead. Bearing in mind, He is coming back to judge the world. Not just the church. I think sometimes we, we shrink him down to a local deity. No. I got on a plane in 2016 and flew all the way to the other side of the world in Mongolia where it's 1% Christian, and already when I got there, Jesus Christ had a claim on every square inch and on every soul. We do not make him Lord. He is Lord. We proclaim it. So when we come to John 14, we see that He is the Lord. Secondarily, we see that He is the Savior. He is the Savior. Back to verse 6. Jesus said to him, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. I would argue contextually that the emphasis is on the way. This is the sixth of Jesus' I am statements in John's gospel. And here he gives us the briefest and most comprehensive overview of himself when he says he is the way, the truth, and the life. This is undoubtedly an absolute and exclusive claim to be the Savior of the world. There's a story, and I wish I could cite my sources because I know that's a proper thing to do. I can't remember where I heard it. That's the problem with podcasts is that you take in so much information, right? I heard it somewhere, sloppy academics, but it was a story of C.S. Lewis. And so there was all these academics, you know, I believe at Oxford, and they were debating world religions, and they had had all these different names, you know, uh, Muhammad and all the different Shiva and all the God of the Hindus and various things on the board and... Bearing in mind that Lewis, he died the day that Kennedy was assassinated. So this was back probably in the 50s. He died in 63, so I'm guessing this conversation happened in the 40s or 50s. So they have all these different names on the board, and here comes Lewis, you know, this wry Englishman. So they call him in and say, you know, Dr. Lewis, can you come in here? And he says, what, what makes your Christianity any different than all of these? And I guess expecting him to be totally perplexed, you know, with the, with the profundity of that question. But Lewis cracks a smile, and with his wry, Lewis-esque kind of way of speaking, he says, well, it's easy. <laughs> oh, really? What makes your Christianity different than all of these? He says, that's easy. It's grace. It's grace. All of those are works-based systems to a greater or lesser degree. The thing that makes Jesus different is grace. What has Christ done that He can be the way, the truth, and the life? He perfectly obeyed God's law. Now, the presuppositionalist to me is going to come out, but... One thing I know for sure, when I step out into this city, I drove through downtown Minneapolis last night, courtesy of Google Maps. I hate Google Maps. 
was trying to get to Edina, and it takes me down to Fourth Avenue. And you're like, what in the world? But I could go and stop anyone on that sidewalk, and I don't know their story. I don't know their lived experience. You know, there's a lot that I don't know, but what do I know? Because I believe in sola scriptura. I know that they are suppressing the truth of God. I know on some level, unless they have suppressed it to the point of searing their consciences, that their consciences bear witness to them that they have broken the law of God, that they don't even live up to their own moral code perfectly. I know that to be true because God's Word says it is true in Romans 1.18, and by my own experience, I know it to be true. The gospel is good news because Christ came and obeyed the law of God perfectly in His active obedience. He never sinned. My conscience tells me, if I never sin for the rest of my life, I'm still going to hell because I have a bad record and I've broken God's law. I need a substitute that is more than a bull, more than a goat. It's kind for kind, quid pro quo. A goat cannot take the place of me. I run over a dog, I feel horrible. I run over a human, I go to jail. There is a substantive difference because we are made in the image of God. I, as a man, have sinned against a holy God. I need a man to take my place, and I need a man that is perfect, whose conscience does not gnaw at him in the wee hours of the morning. Someone who can go to bed and rise up with the smile of God in his life because he's obeyed the law. And that's why 1 Peter 3.18 matters. Christ has died, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. We need a law keeper. You can be the biggest rank pagan in the world, but what I do know is that you have the law of God written on your heart, and you know. Why does the unreached person on the other side of the world, in the middle of the jungle, hide the body when they kill someone in a flight of passion? Because their conscience tells them, Guilty! 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 So we come to them and tell them that gnawing ache that you feel, there is one who has perfectly obeyed the law that you failed to keep. Jesus says, I am the way, and I am the truth, and I am the life. He perfectly obeyed God's law. He is the Savior because He fully satisfied God's wrath. Every other system in the world is a measure of self-atonement and self-salvation. We've talked about Luther, but we could just as easily talk about our friends and co-workers caught up in the, this pseudo-New Age movement where being spiritual in some amorphous sense is really cool, undefined spirituality. If I hear one more person on Facebook tell me they're sending me positive energy, I'm going to puke. What is this? What are you talking about? I need to know legal verity. I need, because of my conscience and my guilt and my shame, I don't need your positive energy. When I've broken the law, what I need is for the judge to look me in the eye and say, not guilty, acquitted, you're free to go. That's what I need. 
And that's why we praise God as we heard in Romans 5, 9, since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Jesus is the Savior because He obeyed the law of God, satisfied the wrath of God, and He is the truth because it is Christ alone that reveals the truth of God. He is not some lesser angel. And it's not just the Book of Mormon, that's the Quran as well. By a lesser angelic dictation to Muhammad. He is not some angel. He is not just a messenger. He's not the angel Michael. He's not the angel Gabriel. We don't go. I was in Sedona, Arizona. Beautiful place, isn't it? With all the red rocks and everything. My heart broke. Here are all these yuppies who many of them make crazy money. They have pedigrees and education. They're brilliant people. And they're going there and they're buying vortex rocks because there's energy inside of them. And they go and bask in the vortex where the positive energy comes out of the earth. It's happening right now. And yet we have a Bible that we hold in our laps, some of which are woefully dusty, And that Bible says in Hebrews chapter 1, long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, and through whom also He created the world. That's a different sermon. You want truth? You want to know truth? Neighbor? Coworker? college kid who's deconstructing, which normally just means he's sleeping with his girlfriend? You want to know truth? Jesus says, I am the truth. Plato and Socrates and Aristotle and Pythagoras and a million other Greek philosophers are nothing but a footnote compared to the Everest that is the eternal Son of God, which is the Word made flesh. What kind of truth are we dealing with when we're dealing with omniscience? It's not that he knows a lot of stuff. He reveals God to us. He understands how black holes work. He made them. He says, I am the way and I am the truth. F.F. Bruce says this, Jesus is in fact the only way by which men and women may come to the Father. There is no other way. If this seems offensively exclusive, let it be borne in mind that the one who makes this claim is the incarnate word, the revealer of the Father. So beloved, we are called, we are called out of a comfortable Christianity. We have gotten by with a lot, haven't we? Everybody complains about 2020, and I do too. It's, it's been a train wreck. But there is a part of me, because I love comfort, I'm, I'm thankful that I'm realizing more and more to follow Christ is costing me something. More and more. It's not like it was in the South 
where I grew up in the 1950s, where there was a lot of, you know, there was a lot of social currency with being at First Baptist Church of blah, blah, blah. Your business grew. You networked there. Church was good for your resume. There is nothing, nothing to be gained in this culture when you say, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ and all y'all are wrong. You'll say it that way. We're called to be a peculiar people, not a jerk. But you can say it as nicely as you want. You can say, I love you. I'm for you. I'm praying for you. I tried that on Twitter. What did I get? You condescending evangelical. This is what I'm talking about. You come to the table and act as if you've got a corner on truth. How arrogance. I didn't even mention Jesus yet. Solus Christus will get you killed, but it will also get people saved. We proclaim with the apostles in Acts 4.12, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And they said that in a pagan culture where there's a lot of names under heaven by which we can be saved. Zeus. Paphrodite, Hermes, we've got God's galore. And they came and proclaimed an exclusive Christ in an inclusive age. And we are called to do the same. And bear in mind that most of those apostles went to the stake or lost their head. But they gained a wonderful reception in heaven. He is the Lord, He is the Savior. The way, the truth, and the life. But we can't leave out the latter part of John 14, 6. We also see the gospel. The Lord, the Savior, and the gospel. Look at what he says. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Beloved, in all of our talk of exclusivity and a historical understanding of the errors surrounding Christ and affirming truth on who Jesus Christ is, may we not lose sight of the aim. Why do we want to challenge wrong ideas of who Jesus is? Why do we want to take the time and risk being offensive when the Jehovah's Witnesses come or the Mormons come or our New Age co-worker comes or whoever it may be with a misunderstanding of Christ? Why do we want to do this? Is it just to win arguments? Young theology nerds, of which I was one, still am. It's not just to win arguments. Jesus says, No one comes to the Father. That's the aim. The aim is to faithfully preach the gospel of Jesus Christ so that lost sinners will repent in trusting Christ alone for salvation. I want to expose false teaching like Arianism and Eutychianism and all other isms. I want to dismantle the lie of inclusivism that You can be a Christian and also keep some semblance of your Muslim heritage, and you can worship Buddha and Christ, and you just, you know, you just come in under this universal banner of the brotherhood of man. 
Liberal theology has been drinking that Kool-Aid for a long time. And I would say it's because of rank cowardice. It is easy to say you can have Jesus and Muhammad just come. We want to dismantle inclusivism and pluralism that many paths lead to God. That we don't even need to evangelize the lost. As long as they're sincere, they'll find God. Joel Osteen said that on national television. As long as they're sincere. That's all that gets you into heaven is sincerity. You can believe in the gigantic spaghetti monster in the sky, but if you really, really believe it, you're fine. Why do we want to move out of our comfortable middle-class Christianity and go up against these ideas and risk offense and risk loss? It's, it's not just offense now. You're going to lose your job. You're going to lose social standing. They may put a pistol in your face. 2020 has proven depravity runs deep. And the incensed masses lose their minds. I don't know what will happen to you. Why risk it? I want to exalt the supremacy and exclusivity of Christ, the eternal Son of God. And I want to do this so that others might experience the latter part of verse 6. That they might come to and see and enjoy and worship God. I want them to do what they were designed to do. What is the chief end of man? Man in America, man in Brazil, man in Mongolia, man in Canada, man in the UK. What is the chief end of man? To glorify God and enjoy Him forever. I want them to do that. I want Jesus' prayer in John 17, 24. When Jesus says, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. I want that to happen. John Piper says, the ultimate good of the gospel the ultimate good. There are many goods of the gospel. Praise God for justification by faith. Praise God for grace. Praise God for propitiation. Praise God for all of these things. But what's the ultimate aim? The ultimate aim and good of the gospel is seeing and savoring the beauty and value of God. You ever just drive around I just like to drive around and listen to the radio. You ever just see people? I was at the gas station. I was washing my wife's van, cruising in the minivan, humbling as all get out. And you just see people. I was watching these people vacuum out their cars. And I was watching people go through and buy gas and just people. Knowing most of them don't know Christ. And wrestling, thinking, if I don't believe John 14, 6, I knew I was preaching this. So if I don't really believe that, it, it'd be really tempting just to, I just want to vacuum out my car and get out of here. I don't really care what you do. You worship whatever you want to worship. 
You do your thing. But these words are resonating in my ears, and because I believe in the authority of Scripture, I can't shake it. If you do not repent and come to Christ alone, you will go to hell. And this is resonating in my brain as I'm just watching people living their lives. I'm thinking, all i got to do, you just hear the voice of the enemy, just turn the stones into bread. All you got to do is just change the the to an uh. Just go up to that guy and tell him, hey, I found a way to God and I think it would be, I think it would work for you too. The cult of pragmatism in our day. I think it will work for you too. And if it doesn't, then as long as you find a way, then that's cool too. But I would prefer you find my way, but you know, I'm not going to get too dogmatic about this. That would be a great conversation. But I would be a coward and I would be faithless. And I would be the scent of death unto death to that man. Instead of going up and handing him a gospel track and saying, I care for you. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. And there's one guy who's driving a nice car. Your nice car, your pedigree, your bank account, all your good deeds, whatever nonprofit board you serve in, it's all going to burn unless you bow your knee now to King Jesus. And when you put it in those terms, you realize it doesn't matter how nice I am. This is going to go one of two ways. We need to be compassionate people, but you got to get over being nice. I think we would be tempted to excommunicate Paul from time to time. He was pretty dang bold. Tell me you would hang out with Luther and not get uncomfortable. Come on now. Brothers and sisters, we live in an age that sneers at any claim to absolute truth. Holding to solus Christus will, without a doubt, draw the ire and the ridicule, or worse, from a culture that applauds inclusivism. But faithfulness calls for courageous compassion, for tender tenacity, and for beautiful boldness. We must be clear. Yes, we must be kind. But we must be clear. All, all other paths, be it Hinduism, Judaism, Islam, New Age, atheism, Christian science, on and on and on, all of them lead to hell. So for the glory of Christ and for the love of the souls of men, may we sing in Christ alone who took on flesh, fullness of God in helpless babe. This gift of love and righteousness, scorned by the ones He came to save, till on that cross, as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. For every sin on Him was laid, and here in the death, Christ, I live. May we declare solus Christus with the aim of soli Deo Gloria.
which we will hear after we have lunch, which is a means of grace. So let's do that now. Let's pray. You want to pray for lunch, brother? Yep. Father, we thank you for this time. I feel I've been fed well. I pray the same for these precious ones, God. We often have more truth than we know how to obey. We just ask for faith. Just faith to believe your promises are better than anything the world promises. Faith to believe that Christ is who he says he is. We're not Gnostics. You're not unclear. You've been abundantly clear. We just need faith to step out and say it and live it and to die for it. So I pray that the thing that I can think of is most loving for my friends and for myself is, God, give us an increase of faith to the truth we already know. Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. No one, none of our coworkers, none of our neighbors, none of our peers, none of our distant family members, none of them come to you except through him. So would you help us? And may we do all these things with compassion, humility, amen, but all for the glory of God. Which calls for compassion, but it also calls for courage. God, we love the reformers. We're thankful. But they're gone. And you have seen fit sovereignly to put us here in this day and this hour. God, help us to be a voice of reform and a voice of truth for the love of man and for the glory of Christ. Amen.